Welcome to The Drill Down, the business stories behind stocks on the move. I'm Corey Johnson. Today is Wednesday, May 12. Just ahead, investors go sour on high-tech insurance provider Lemonade. An upstart brings artificial intelligence to debt consolidation and puts up some solid results. And our guest, Kim Forrest, explains how Intel's business is in the midst of some massive change. But first, it's sponsor time. The Drill Down is brought to you by Era, a one-stop equity platform where you can seamlessly connect to any earnings call and surface actionable insights automatically. Era's AI-powered tools will allow you to work faster and smarter. That's Era.com. And you can listen to The Drill Down on any of your favorite podcast platforms, iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, iHeart, TuneIn. Hit that subscribe button and catch every show. And remember to join The Drill Down on Twitter and Instagram at DrillDownPod. Link up with us on LinkedIn and connect with us on our website, bizpod.net. Let us know what companies you want to talk about. All right, I'm Corey Johnson. Welcome to The Drill Down, where we tell you the business stories behind stocks on the move. Isaac Webster joining me as always. Isaac, what are you looking at in the world of business today? Hey, Corey. Here are the three top business stories of Wall Street was focused on today. Stocks selling off as inflation data stoked worries over the prospect of a sooner than anticipated rate hike. The Dow dropping over 680 points just one day after its biggest drop since February and capping its worst three-day stretch since October. The S&P and NASDAQ both shedding over 2%. All this after a report showed consumer prices surging in April by the most in any 12-month period since 2008. But still, if you look at those one-year results, the Dow and S&P are both up 41% and the NASDAQ is up 44% over the past 12 months. So inflation concerns, it's all about that, right? I mean, uh, uh, we, we've been, how many companies have we been talking to and listening to conference calls out where they're talking about really serious inflation and then you have this sort of panic at the pump sending prices up again. I don't mean to steal your next story. Well, yeah, you just keep, you just reading my script here. Panic at the pump, that's the next story. That's the next, the second biggest story that we're following today. Panic at the pump in some of those areas of the U.S. Um, with the Colonial Pipeline remaining offline, gas shortages are getting worse in the Southeast U.S. Gas Buddy reporting that mo more than half of the gas stations in North Carolina are out of fuel. The national average for a gallon of gas jumped above $3 on Wednesday for the first time in nearly seven years. You know, it's a huge struggle. I mean, although the pictures on Twitter are very funny. The federal government had to put out a tweet earlier today that said, please do not put gasoline in a plastic bag. After there were reports of a woman uh, putting filling up a plastic bag to the top with gas and then putting it in the trunk of her car, I don't know what's behind this type of behavior. But, See, in um, her defense, she was just going to make a bomb. <laughs> okay. I mean, well, that, makes, that makes perfect sense then. In that okay. case. Oh yeah, in that case, she was doing exactly what you have to do. Great, good for her. Anyway, um, yeah, so that's all happening, which is a lot of fun to watch. Uh, the next story here is staying focused on the Southern U.S. Mississippi will be the next state to opt out of additional federal unemployment benefits Mississippi is following the path of Alabama, Arkansas, Montana, and South Carolina. They've all opted out of additional benefits. Yeah, there's this notion that some of these uh, uh, economists and some conservative politicians have that if you give people uh, unemployment benefits, they won't ever go back to work. Uh, and you see other states responding with 
with uh, bonuses that they're paying to for unemployed workers to go back to work, go to work bonus, but trying to get away from that notion of unemployment benefits. What we know about unemployment benefits is always that they go straight back into the economy. Uh, one of the most effective uh, sort of uses of, of public funds in trying to restart an economy. And I have to say, any of those, any of these politicians or economists that are saying that unemployment benefits prevents people from looking and finding jobs simply have never been on unemployment benefits. It's just, you know, that's, it's laughable. Corey, what stocks you're drilling down on today? Let's look at Lemonade. Lemonade, L-M-D-N. Shares dropped 18% on Wednesday and they've lost 50% since the start of the year. What's going on with Lemonade? Do you know this company? I don't. I've never heard of it. It's a fascinating company that's uh, it's based in New York, and they're basically saying, we're going to take unused uh, technology and apply it to this old world of insurance, uh, and we're going to change the model. We're going to change the world with technology. And uh, th- they put out results today that were just bad. A lot, a lot of metrics are bad out there. They had an operating loss of $41 million and a gross loss ratio of 121%. Gross loss ratio in, in insurance means that they lost more money and had to pay out more than all of the premiums that they could possibly gather during the quarter. In this case, 121% more than their premiums. A lot of that, about 40%, was because of that deep freeze in Texas back in February. But the rest of it was just writing bad policies and having to pay out a lot more money than their premiums. Now, analysts of Wall Street completely missed this, this, this development in the last quarter. And so today they ratcheted down their expectations for lemonade uh, and that hit the stock. This sounds really frightening for anyone that works at lemonade. Was there anything the fans of lemonade insurance could be excited about here? Well, fans is the right word. There are fans of this stock who really believe their vision of technologically driven change in insurance. Their cash doubled, but that's because they sold $600 million worth of stock. Their customer growth was up from 6% to 10%. But insurance, uh, look, when you add customers, it's like a gambler placing more bets. It doesn't mean you're going to make more money, right? It might mean that you make more losses. If you write bad loans and respond by writing more of them, it doesn't make your business better. Now, the fans like to think that this is the only company out there measuring what their customers do with technology or telematics. Well, that's just not the case. A, A progressive has you know, they patented telematics in 1998. This is not anything new. But Lemonade is not alone. Uh, but if you listen to CEO, boy, that uh, CEO Daniel Schreiber, I mean, he just paints this vision of technology magic. He's very Elon Musk-like. And when you listen to him, as you're about to, you've got to decide, are you a true believer or are you a dyed-in-the-wool cynic? Because uh, on this morning's conference call, he painted this picture of the big, powerful legacy insurance companies like Geico and Prudential and Allstate as being weak because they're powerful. Yeah, that was the case he made here as Daniel Schreiber. Strengths and weaknesses are two sides of the same coin. And all that legacy and bulk comes at the expense of nimbleness. That may be a problem for them since the car industry is going through a once in a century dislocation. And that may favor the legacy free. As a rule, when innovations are continuous or incremental, The benefits of these innovations accrue to incumbents. But when they are discontinuous or disruptive, they typically accrue to the benefit of disruptors or newcomers. And I think that the transformations in the mobility space are very much of the latter kind. Cars are moving from being mechanical platforms to being digital platforms, 
morphing from being dumb appliances into smart robots, and from being isolated devices to being nodes on a network. Tesla is clearly showing the way, but while the majority of cars will take some years to be as fully connected as a Tesla, their drivers already are. The smartphone every driver brings to their excursion has exquisitely sensitive sensors, allowing us to derive gravitational, magnetic, location and directional measurements that we can map onto driving metrics like how much a person drives, how aggressively and whether on accident prone roads or on relatively safe ones. Yeah, gravitational, magnetic, location and direct. Really? I mean, I I don't know. I, I'm picturing him in like a long robe and a wizard's cap with a wand in his hand. Yeah, I could I could listen to that guy forever. <laughs> Corey, what's your next drill down? Let's look at Array Technologies. Array Technologies. Array uh, trades under A R R Y. They drop shares drop forty five percent today, and shares have shed. 68% this year. What's going on with Array? Well, a 45% drop in one day tells you that this business was in a world of hurt long before this conference call this morning. But the world found out about it today. The company Array is based in Albuquerque. They make giant solar panel installations for the big utility companies. And this quarter, they suffered a double whammy. Number one, the Trump administration changing federal investment tax credits uh, that change took place uh, effective the beginning of this year. So that really changed the benefits of uh, putting in solar panels. And customers pulled deals forward into last year to get that tax credit before it expired and didn't order this year when that tax credit it didn't expire, but it shrunk quite a bit. So Array's sales down 44% to $250 million. And Isaac, you talked about inflation earlier in the show. And you know what happened to Array Technologies in April was all about sudden commodity price inflation. These guys used not just solar panels with silicon, they use a lot of steel and steel prices went through the roof in April and into May. Now, Array does not hedge steel prices like some big steel consumers do. That is, they don't buy and sell futures contracts to lock in the price. Instead, the companies just worked fast. So they negotiate with the customer, get them a quick quote, adjust the price up only if the future uh, contracts looked higher, but without an actual hedge. What happened to them with steel prices in April caught them totally unawares. Here's the CEO, James Fusaro, explaining the results this morning. In normal conditions, you know, when you have stable commodities, we would be giving indicative quotes that were obviously relatively stable to what the futures were looking like. So we could pretty much nail that down. And obviously there was triggers per contract per customer on any prior or existing cost escalations that one might see with commodities. But given the rate of increase that we have seen, so for example, since April 1st, um, uh, commodities uh, hot rolled coil is up 10% and still continues to rise. That actually wasn't the case kind of early on, if you go back to maybe like early April. So we were getting prices and futures were actually pointing down. So we, we felt confident in our ability to give a price. They would go back, they'd factor that in. By the time you get to a contract where you're close to signing, um, we saw that in some cases prices went up, but still looked like futures were going down. You give them a price increase, and then lo and behold, you'd execute to the PO, and by the time you would solidify with your suppliers, there'd be subsequent increases. 
So it's that lag, or shall I say that lead time between when you agreed upon a price and or subsequent price increases to when you actually close and then we negotiate with our, our suppliers that you were seeing a rapid increase in the commodities that impacted, obviously, our COGS. So those COGS, those costs of goods sold, went up so fast, these guys just couldn't adapt to it. This is when inflation gets real, right? This company can't expand the way that they want to. They were already facing some completely unrelated headwinds uh, with the change in the tax environment. And so as much as you know, the world generally thought the Democratic administration and President Biden would be more inclined towards solar, and it is, it actually, the current situation on the ground right now for array technologies was just punishing. Corey, what is your next drill down? Let's look at Upstart. Upstart, that trades under UPST. Shares rose 3% today and they've gained 120 126% this year. What's going on with Upstart? Well, good things, obviously, with that kind of move in the stock price. And this company is, you know, not unlike Lemonade, which we talked about earlier. It's also claiming to be a financial technology innovator, in this case, using artificial intelligence to figure out which borrowers are most likely to pay back loans. So does Upstart make the loans? No, no, no. They, so they, they're kind of a lead generation company. They market to potential clients and hand those off to the bank partners and the banks are making the loans. But they use this artificial intelligence to kind of score and better understand uh, the risk that the borrower uh, is presenting. Gotcha, so they use FICO scores? No. So these guys are actually doing it themselves using artificial intelligence. They think FICO scores are too old school. They think uh, prime borrowers and that whole concept is too old school. And you know, unlike Lemonade, what we see with Upstart is they're actually showing these results. And today's results, again, you know, they're showing that AI really works for them and that as their model processes more and more applications and processes more loans and deals with less and less failure of borrowers to pay back, their model gets better and better. And so finding out who is a good risk helps them lend and smaller and smaller amounts. Here's the founder and CEO, uh, Dave Girard. The model accuracy uh, does both of those things. It, it gets smarter about separating good credits from bad credits. It uh, thereby helps us avoid offering loans to those who are more likely to default. And the effect of that, which is the most basic sort of building block of our business, is that uh, it allows us to approve more people at, at generally lower rates. That fundamental dynamic is about as core to you know, what we do and, and how we do it as, as anything. And, and um, we don't term anybody near prime because a lot of times that's a legacy label applied by a FICO score that's not very predictive any longer. So um, in our mind, we are looking for people with, you know, uh, a very high likelihood to repay a loan um, as, um, you know, by a very specific model. And that dynamic is, is the core of what has driven the growth, along with reduction in friction um, for people who have seen a loan that they would like to would like to get access to and have to just get through the approval process. I actually went to the website uh, this morning when I was coming in, and in about five minutes, I got through the website, got a quote on a loan, got, a, got, got approved and got a quote. Uh, the quote wasn't great. Uh, it was a 
what I thought was kind of a high interest rate. Maybe they know a lot about me, but it was a high interest rate. And there was a fee on the front of it that made it what seemed to me like a pretty expensive loan. Um, but I just thought it was so interesting that this technology could sort of crank through an application so quickly and decide right away. They say that most of their loans are paid out within a single day of the person asking for the loan. All right, well, up next, Kim Forrest, Chief Investment Officer at Boca Capital. She's going to help us drill down into Intel, and which she says is a different company from what you thought it was. The Drill Down is brought to you by ERA, the equity platform with event intelligence and insights for fundamental investors. Seamlessly connect to any earnings call and take advantage of ERA's AI-powered tools. Work faster and smarter with ERA.com. And remember to join The Drill Down on Twitter and Instagram at DrillDownPod. Link up with us on LinkedIn and sign up for our newsletter on our website, bizpod.net. All right, welcome back to The Drill Down. We're drilling down right now on a company I know and love so much, Intel. Kim Forrest, the Chief Investment Officer at Bokeh Capital, joins us from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Kim, uh, first, tell us about your company. What, what is Bote or Bokeh, I should say? Sure. Well, we pronounce it Boca, and it has to do with the uh, photography term about fuzzy backgrounds. And why did we choose that? Well, it kind of exemplifies what we do. So we see the investing um, landscape. However, just like Boca focuses your subject matter of a photograph, we um, really concentrate on growth, finding companies that are growing, maybe not to the average investor, but we know they're going to grow. So that's what Boca Capital is all about. We are growth at a reasonable price investors, and we are creating an asset management company here in Pittsburgh. And and I'm glad you don't spell it like Boca Raton, which is the home of so many yeah. stock frauds. We'll stay with B-O-K-E-H. So Boca, looking at growth, you're looking at a company, Intel, that is having great difficulty with growth. It's a company I've covered a lot. I say I like it because, uh, boy, I like so many of the people who've worked there over the years. Um, but they have really struggled in the last, call it two or three years, uh, to the point where even when there's fantastic growth in the areas in which they focus the most, that being cloud computing and data centers and PCs, they're still struggling. They are. They are. And they have made... Um, some bad decisions, and they deserve to struggle at this point. But what we do is we look deeply into this company. This is a company that I've followed for as long as I've, well, <laughs> I was a software engineer before I did this, and I started doing, uh, uh, I was on the sell side in 99. So I've used Intel products for a very, very long time and used to watch them with that perspective in mind. But I now have watched them as a, a company producing products since 99. And they were on the top of the world. They were great at two things, not only designing chips, but actually making chips. Absolutely. I've been to those fabs. I've Mm -hmm. I've had the treat of uh, back when I was a TV reporter, I got them to let me into one of the fabs up in Hillsborough, Oregon. And and they're just uh, enormous facilities that take so many years of planning, a decade of planning and billions and billions uh, uh, of dollars to build these things. It was their their secret sauce, their ability to manufacture these chips with such high yields and fewer errors and at a complexity at which, uh, as Craig Barrett used to say, the most complex machines, uh, Craig Barrett, the former CEO, the most complex machines ever made in the history of mankind. Right. 
And I, I loved them for that too, that they not only designed their chips, but they had the fab. And here's the secret sauce. The fab engineers could go back and tell the design engineers, hey, tweak this and we can get a little more yield out. And that was the secret sauce. So, however, as the um, teeny tiny wires and teeny tiny transistors got smaller and smaller, they did not keep up with um, the fabs being leading edge. But we think they have time, money, and the, more importantly, the talent that is going to be able to get them back on top and thus have that tight combination of not just designing great chips like NVIDIA does and then delivering chips like TMSC uh, does. Yeah. But, um, you know, putting both of those together, getting that secret sauce back together. So how do they fall on such hard times? Um, they've obviously changed management a handful of times. Uh, Pat Gelsinger, who started his career there, went to VMware and had some great success there and now has come back as CEO. Um, Brian Krasanich left kind of suddenly mm-hmm. uh, after some personal problems, uh, nothing having to do with the company. But it seemed that the company very quickly uh, ran into trouble, which is a surprise to me. One of the one of the things that's so weird about Intel culture, particularly I think in Silicon Valley where change is the norm, you know, you go into Intel and you meet someone who's worked there for 9, 10, 12, 15 years, and they're still the new kid. It's a place that is resistant to change. So I was surprised to see them change so much in such a short order. Right. Well, I think that was a huge part of the problem was that management wasn't at the helm. You know, they were busy spinning through doing their own thing. And to be fair, perhaps they even succumbed to their own success and stopped um, that almost paranoid drive forward. I mean, I think anytime you're in uh, software or hardware or technology, you have to have the fear of missing out, of missing that next big thing. And shame on them. They passed on the Apple phone, you know, as being a provider to that. They're not going to let that happen. And now I hope that they see that their uh, their fabs have to be paid attention to, too, and you can't run on autopilot. And I think Pat uh, Gelsinger really right. has his pulse on that and can turn this ship around. So uh, Gelsinger's plan uh, for reviving the company includes – uh, an expansion of their fabs, which number one is going to be is going to take a very long time to do, and number two going to be quite expensive. But to kind of take the TSMC model, which is to say to outside customers, you can manufacture your chips in our top of the line facilities. They traditionally have not had a lot of capacity for that. So that's a very different business model than the one you're describing, which is design a fabrication facility, a factory, I was going to call it, but design a fab uh, for their chips and design chips for their fab. Do they lose that if they be if they become kind of a one-stop contract manufacturing uh, uh, facility? No, I don't think so. I mean, as we see with their competition, They certainly have been able to do it. And I think that um, Patrick Gelsinger has gone into the ranks of their um, engineers and have gotten their approval and the marching orders. Um, We're getting to a point where there's a lot of similarity across platforms. And what do you mean? um, Well, just with chip design, right? Oh, interesting. So, 
Do so, you mean like a, yeah. like a graphics processor is very similar to a CPU and it's very similar to yep. a, a phone chip, if you will, a phone CPU? Yep. yep. And I mean, they are tweaked for special applications, but they have a whole lot of similarities to them. And I think that is what is uh, going to allow fabs to continue making money. Um, the other thing, I think uh, just their decades-long leadership has allowed them to really understand the cost drivers. And NVIDIA is expecting people to, or their customers, to pay up for their chips. And I think Intel realizes, you know, price is important. So I think they're going to play the, we can make it cheaper and you can sell more of them cheaper. And that is ultimately their strategy. It's a strategy. It's not always one that leads to great return on invested capital, right? I mean, you know, and this is, I mentioned that because I'm kind of looking at some of the statistics for this company. You know, 10 years ago or so, return on invested capital for this company was 20% or so, which was fantastic. They took that down to 14. Now that's down to 12, uh, 12% return, which is still not terrible. But if they're going to build these fabs from a weakened cast position and, and devote all these resources to it, you'd think they'd want to earn that back by charging a little more for their chips, not less. Well, we'll see what happens. But I still think um, they are playing the margin game, not just the absolute price game. So, you know, that should, you know, I, I've never been a fan of making it up in volume and certainly in consulting, oh, the next consulting gig will make that up. It never happens. But I do think the world is hungry, crazy hungry for semis and that they'll be able to have some sort of mix of probably cheaper, dumber chips, if you will, that right. um, just supplies some sort of uh, almost annuity-like earnings for them, and then they can make money off of the higher-end chips. Well, it seems like they're already doing that with their their, their um, addition of what they call Internet of Things chips. That was a big Brian Crisanti uh, emphasis. But um, this Internet of Things business are almost by definition kind of dumber chips. They're smarter than sure. they used to be, aren't they all? But the semiconductors <laughs> that go into automobiles, the semiconductors that go into drones, the semiconductors yep. that go into – that surround the central processing unit on your phone uh, are those kinds of dumber, cheaper chips that can um, uh, be sold in greater volumes. Right. And as we're learning, you know, as um, automobile makers kind of uh, shut down or at least reduce the uh, what they can make because of the missing con uh, semiconductor chips, it's a real problem. So, you know, uh, having more chips in the world, I don't see that we're going to have oversupply anytime soon. And I think that is one of the issues that they're trying to solve right now. So one of the biggest developments uh, that I think we've seen in the last 10 years in, this, in the semiconductor business is uh, something you alluded to earlier, which is that companies outside of the chip makers are designing chips, specifically giant companies like Apple and Amazon and Google are all doing custom semiconductor design for their phones, their data centers, and their data centers. And yeah. I think that that's a, a, a great threat, I would think, both to Intel and to AMD, because I think that on the margin, those companies would be likely to use their chips if they were eh, almost as good as an Intel chip, just because they totally control its design and it gives them some sort of edge. 
Um, is is that an ongoing threat, or do you think the second Intel comes with a better chip, they'll drop their chip design and chip design programs? I I think the the option B, and this very much mirrors what I used to see in software, which is the push pull between should we outsource our IT staff or keep them inside? Should we outsize or should we get consultants to come in and write our software or should we do it from the inside? And this is the same issue. So nobody really wants to have more employees. I hate to break it to you. That's what capitalism is kind of all about is productivity, fewer employees. So if any of these chip companies could make the perfect chip to be used, um, you know, in Amazon AWS farms, they're going to drop their internal um, processes like a hot potato. It's expensive. You think they, they'll, they'll, they'll turn that fast on a dime to do that because they haven't, to, to your point, it is expensive. They've invested a lot of money and time getting the right people to design those chips and to stay ahead. And I wonder if, if you know, that wasn't the case 10 years ago. And I wonder if Intel can really catch up and get those people back. Right. Well, the great thing is they, the good ones tend to get hired by, you know, somebody's going to pick up a good engineer, a good product manager, a good project manager. That's what happens. And people that really should go on to their next life, go on to their next life. So um, in terms of growth for these guys, uh, they have done some acquisitions in the semiconductor space. You know, they, they, they used to, when they would do big acquisitions, they were kind of weird ones. Like the one that sticks out to me is McAfee, right? Oh, when I they know. they got yeah. into, you know, everything related to McAfee is cuckoo nuts, right? Especially uh, the great John McAfee <laughs> himself. Um, I, and, you know, they acquired McAfee. They tr- they had this notion of software on the chip. They ran that for a very long time and, and, and then spun it out. And I wonder, you know, do you see them doing bolt-on acquisitions in the software uh, arena and other things like that? Or do you think that they would actually um, look to do chip-related uh, and very specifically um, uh, semiconductor manufacturing uh, acquisitions? I think they um, every well-run company has to decide, should we build it or buy it? And I think they're opportunistic. And the sense I get from Patrick Gelsinger is he is first and foremost a businessman. So he will, you know, pursue what is best for the company. And I think he hears the the tick-tock of time really bearing down on him. They don't have a whole lot of time. He has to do stuff fast. So that kind of leads us towards probably in the shorter term, that right acquisition, if he thinks it can integrate and add value, he would do that, especially if it could get the company back on track to uh, the fabs being um just better than they have been on the the more exotic chips. So that's kind of the Miss America answer that I give to you, but that's that's what I think. <laughs> Can't we all just get along? Um, uh, I, I dream of a better world with, yeah. Yes. So uh, I, I wonder though, when we look at this company in particular, the culture of the company is so interesting, as I mentioned. Uh, let me tell you a story. So uh, um, it used to be that uh, uh, at the, and it may still be the case, even when I was up there, I don't know, five, six years ago at this Hillsborough factory, we were trying to get video of workers coming to work. And I was warned, yeah, um, at you won't see anybody from about 10 minutes to nine until about 20 minutes after nine. I said, well, well, why is that? And they said, well, Andy Grove used to fly up here early in the morning and stand at the front door with his watch and look to see if anyone was going to walk in late and yell at him. And 
Andy's been has passed away many years ago, but people are still a little nervous that that could happen again. So nobody comes to work um, until it's well after nine o'clock or well before. I wonder if that culture, that cubicle culture, that strict um, uh, culture of of of, of cracking a whip that Intel's so famous for doesn't work in 2021. And if they'll have trouble getting those engineers who are working at Apple and working at, at Google and, 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 and Amazon and having a very different sort of uh, work environment and a notion of what work is. Well, again, I think Pat uh, Gelsinger's time at VMware was well spent. He was there for, I believe, six years and, you know, that was very software sort of oriented and you would see that more software culture. So I'm anticipating that he wants to have excellence as his culture, but not necessarily mm, strict timeliness. Uh, obedience. <laughs> you know, spend more time at work, you know, not less. Excellence over obedience. Um, yeah. Well, you know what? We go for the same thing here at the Business Podcast Network. Uh, that was an excellent uh, time with you, Kim. We thank you for your time uh, very much. Uh, it's a it's a company that's you know so important and and, and so important on, a, on such a national level as well. Kim Forrest is the chief investment officer at Boca Capital. And how can uh, our listeners keep track of what's going on at Boca Capital and your thoughts, Kim? I know you're on Twitter occasionally. Occasionally, yeah. I I'm not much of a tweeter. Um, you can check out our website, which is at www.bokeh uh, and then Capital Partners. And uh, you can sign up for our um, add to the distribution list. We should have a new website up shortly, but you can always use the contact us and you will contact us. Uh, which is a good idea. Uh, I'm glad we contacted you, Kim Forrest uh, at Boca Capital. Thank you very much. All right, up next on the drill down, the bite, that one number that tells us a whole lot. We talked about the decline in Intel's once uh, vaunted gross margins. How bad has that decline been? What has the pace of decline been, say, in the last five years? We'll give you that number when the drill down continues. But first. The drill down is brought to you by ERA. ERA's event access and monitoring intelligence platform improves earnings season and the investor events in between through di- comprehensive calendar tracking, one-click event access, dynamic monitors, multicasting, and more. Powered by an advanced language processing engine which consumes 40,000-plus investor events annually across 10,000-plus global equities. Learn more at ERA.com. And remember to join the drill down on Twitter and Instagram at DrillDownPod. Link up with us on LinkedIn and sign up for our newsletter on our website, bizpod.net. And please subscribe to us at your favorite podcast platform, iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, iHeart, TuneIn, you name it. You can find us there, but please hit that subscribe button, hit that follow button, and catch every show. All right, so we are back with the drill down bite, that one number that means a whole lot. Isaac, I mentioned that the gross margins in Intel have fallen so dramatically, uh, you know, 62.7% in the first quarter of 2016. Here we are five years later, and that number is down to 54.6%. That is, and here's your bite, a 13% decline, a rate of decline over the course of the last five years. So it doesn't seem like much, but it really is a, a, a big change for this company that once was able to make chips for a lot less than they charged for those chips. I mean, that's a pretty significant decline, actually. 
Uh, it used to be the most important, important number when they would announce earnings, and the stock would go way up or way down right afterwards just based on that gross margin number. But it seems to get worse and worse every quarter. It's one of the things you'll find out when you follow us on Twitter at Drill Down Pod or follow me at Corey TV. Um, and one of the things you find out by listening to this show. So thank you for listening to the Drill Down. Uh, I'm Corey Johnson. He's Isaac Webster. We are here every weekday trying to tell you the business story behind Stocks of the Move. And of course, as I mentioned, you can follow us on Twitter and of course, go to bizpod.net and sign up for our newsletter. Peace.